Hey, everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Top Hill Recording. Hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 31. What's up, Neil? What's up, buddy? <laughs> so you had your first day back to work after breaking your foot. How'd it go? It was awful. No, man, <laughs> it is exhausting is what it is. That's what, it, more than anything, I, I brought a Freddy's root beer because I, I, I was like, I need some caffeine. Then I realized that root beer doesn't have caffeine. Yeah, root beer is so, caffeine-free, buddy. So hopefully the sugar kicks in. It'll be good. No, but it, it was great just to... You know, man, a long day back at work. I really enjoyed my semi-four-month retirement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it back here. We got a great guest again tonight. We have Frank Green with us. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing real well, man. We're happy to have you on. You know, we, uh, we're we in episode 31, like we just said, and mm-hmm. we were talking before we got on with you I think your name has come up in the podcast, we think, at least three times, maybe more. Yeah, at least okay. three and, separate episodes. Yeah, in 31 episodes. <laughs> wow, that's weird. Well, that's the highest percentage of any other guest, so you're, you're at a... Uh, <laughs> and I do remember... All I, or nothing. I, I do have to say this. I think it was Tony Clark that said Frank Green is the best bass player in Louisville. Well... I appreciate Tony saying that, but I'm not sure that he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good compliment, though. Yeah. Oh, it's a great compliment, and I, I owe him a refreshment of his choice. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of refreshment, we always have a little bit of bourbon while we have the podcast, and I've got a, oh. uh, I've got a selection tonight I've never had. It's James E. Pepper, 1776. Have you ever had that bourbon, Frank? I, I, you know, I haven't, but I'm not a bourbon drinker. Okay, at all. It's weird coming from Kentucky. Uh, that's. I think it's one or the other. You either really enjoy it or don't drink it at all. And yeah. that's pretty normal around Kentucky. But I, this this is a weird one. I've never seen that bottle before. Well, let me read Ever. the back to you because this is interesting. It says, "Established in 1780, during the American Revolution, the Pepper family brand is the oldest brand of whiskey made in Kentucky." Really? That seems like we've heard wow. that claim before. I think every bottle said that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because you always hear Elijah Craig yeah, right. is the oldest. So I don't know. These families come and go, and they, they start making stuff that they made 200 years ago, and they say, oh, it's a, the oldest brand in the state. Okay. We had a guy in here that works in works in the bourbon industry, and he's like, it's all marketing, man. Don't listen to any of that shit. It's all about marketing. There's probably one yeah. word in each of those oldest statements that separates it from the other oldest statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, I'm wondering if this one is uh, family brand. It says the oldest family brand. Ah. Yeah, because so. I was thinking Buffalo Trace Distillery is older than America. It was made in 1773. Well, I don't know if this bottle, if this was made in 1776, but that's the name of it. I know. That's what I'm thinking. So, Frank, cheers. Cheers, man. Cheers. Cheers, people. All right. Let's have a little sip. 
Oh, yeah. Mm. Smooth. Interesting flavor, too. It does have a different flavor. I'm not even going to try to guess the flavors, you know. It's vanilla almond <laughs> with a little peach twist and some leather. <laughs> like, what, man? It just tastes like bourbon. A little bit of yeah, wood. It like and, yeah, so it's, got, uh, and then it's got some berry in there. <laughs> with a slight finish of mandarin orange. Right. A little poly, a little paint thinner. <laughs> there you go. It's and more like chocolate it. covered raisins. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, Frank. So we start off. We just uh, hear a little bit about where music started for you. You know, back in childhood, what are your first memories of music and when it was something when you realized it was going to be something big for you? You know, my first memories of music are probably my mom playing the radio in the mornings. I'm the youngest of four kids. So at a certain time in the morning, the kitchen radio went on. Everybody started moving. Everybody started getting up, but there was always music on and it was always wacky or it was uh, WHAS, which played music back in the day. And uh, just lots of 70s, late 60s pop. You know, the best of the stuff that you remember, stuff that there weren't like genres, you know, defining. It was just good pop music Mm -hmm. and that was on the radio. And that's kind of the same stuff that people look back on and go, oh, wow, that was great 70s music. Well, there was a lot of bad stuff, too, and you heard that. but um, And th- that, that was the beginning. I could listen to the 70s mellow rock all day long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a yacht rock guy, but I, I like a lot of that. It just takes me back, even though it's not my thing. Yeah. Well, you, Brad, you got to give me an example of what, you, what, what are you referring to here. Man, you put me, me on the spot me a now. Song, like, 70s mellows, mellow rock. I don't know. Would that be like Gordon Lightfoot? No. <laughs> <laughs> like bread? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, just easy, chill out. Easy, easy to listen to. Easy. Kind of playing in the background. All right. Yeah. You know, while you're having a beer and grilling a steak or chicken or something. You had to show me your Pandora station. <laughs> I think it's called Mellow 70s Rock. <laughs> It's like the thing that that sixty year olds listen to while they're alone in the dark at night, <laughs> drinking, staring out the window, I mean, going on. Oh, Watch out, Frank! I'm approaching sixty. Hey, I'm I'm in the fifties, so I'm only fifty two. So I guess I'm not approaching yet, but I'm getting yeah. Closer. I'm right behind you. So yeah, we're we're looking at the same exit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So do you remember, did, did you guys spin any albums in the house? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was just like, kind of like the radio was. It was downstairs. My mom passed a few years ago, and I live in her home now. And I am sitting literally three feet away from where our console stereo <laughs> used to be. And the console stereo was basically in the summertime, when everybody was gone and out of the house, that's where I sat with records. Yeah. And down, I say downstairs on the on the ground floor. There were four kids upstairs in two rooms that are like ten by ten. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like super barracks. Um, <laughs> you probably loved it too. Oh, and you never knew that it was too small. <laughs> but you had you know, central air up there too, didn't you? Oh no, <laughs> it still doesn't. <laughs> You know, and and I would I would camp out because everybody would be out of the house uh, uh, during the summer doing their thing or working, and I sat laid in front of the console stereo and put on 
everything that was here from because remember how they used to have the pop compilation mm-hmm. just albums yep. like wacky used to put them out here in town and waky had compilation albums and they would be mm-hmm. all the big hits of that quarter or whatever and we always had those and all the pop compilations and there was country and there was easy rock and some hard rock a lot of comedy records richard Pryor records mm-hmm. yeah. red fox Stephen martin <laughs> downstairs it was i guess probably a pretty good mix of what solidly swamped middle class family listened to <laughs> there was a healthy mix so did you start uh playing instruments at a young age how did you get involved with actually playing what what led the switch from um i just love music to going i think i want to try this the first time i heard hard rock hmm. and that was that was the kind of upstairs music because um, <laughs> all the kids were upstairs my, my sister's i got nine years difference between myself and my sister oldest sister laura and then my brother is seven years older than me and I have another sister that's six years older than me. So they are squarely in 1969 or 70 through 82 or 83. That was all, all rock and roll for me. Hmm. I mean, everything that they listened to when they'd leave the house, I was in the bedroom playing their records. (laughs) (laughs) So, but also because I, I didn't know what, I mean, when you're a little kid, you don't know what a genre is. You just listen to albums, and if you like something, you like something. Well, you did back then. Mm-hmm. And you didn't know why you liked it, and you liked it. Like Grand Funk Railroad, we're an American band. I remember my sister had that 45. She had uh, a Kiss 45 that was Nothing to Lose, which is 1974, I think. I played that like crazy. I mean, just rock and roll all through the seventies, but the big one was kiss for me. Cause I was a kid in the seventies mm. when I heard kiss alive and destroyer, probably when I was seven or eight, I was like, Oh, how many times did different. you wear Gene Simmons makeup for Halloween? None. <laughs> <laughs> None. Huh? <Okay>. None. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Nothing worse than a fat Gene Simmons. <laughs> candy. You're like you're the richest guy in town. You don't need any candy. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of that. No, but uh, it was kiss. And, and honestly, the first time I had an inkling that I wanted to play an instrument was when I saw within a week of each other, I saw Ace Fraley holding a, a Gibson Les Paul, and I saw Jimmy Page holding a Gibson Les Paul. To my eye, they were the same exact guitar, and they kind of were, mm-hmm. but that to me is the 70s. Mm-hmm. That's the two sides of the 70s for me. Jimmy Page and Ace Fraley. It's like the 70s belong to a Les Paul. It's just the magic of seeing somebody playing it, and you go, oh, what is that? And then once, you know, I remember going with my mother to a place out on Dixie Highway, and there was a Dixie Music Center that was in a in the Dixie Manor, and they had a Les Paul in there. And I just stood and I looked at it, and I thought, okay, that's where I'm going, <laughs> like a dork. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the only thing in my life up to that point to where I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting and i don't know why 
How old were you when you when you were in that music store that day? Probably eight or hmm. nine. Really? So it, it hits you pretty early. When you saw what Kiss was doing and the energy they brought to stage and Kiss Alive, do you think that the theatrics of it, it also drew you in or were you so uh, tuned into music anyway that that wasn't as big of a part or do you think that kind of drew you in as an eight, nine-year-old? The thing with that I found, especially with my friends, and we're talking 1976 and 77, Kiss wasn't on TV. Mm-hmm. There weren't music videos. There was never a time to see Kiss in the flesh and moving and playing on TV. So what you, I had, I realized, well, I guess everybody had. We just had these records, mm-hmm. and that was our connection to these people that we didn't know that we wanted to see. And so that became the connection because there was no, it, you know, TV wasn't like it is today. You could turn it on and you can see anything or YouTube or whatever. Mm-hmm. You had to f- physically see someone in person to know how they moved and to know how tall they were or how short they were or how they walked mm-hmm. or what, you know, their body language was. There was just albums and album covers. And that's why Kiss went over so well in my opinion was because they're the first ones who made kids go i want to know more about them because i don't know anything about them i want to in- devour everything about them because i i can't see them mm. i can't go to the show because i'm a kid so my parents stick me with these records and this one opens up into a gatefold and it has four notes you know, and one from each member of the band, like, hey, thanks or whatever for coming to the show. And you see the pictures and you, and you just you build a mythology in your own head about what you're seeing and who they are because you can't see them in person. It's like Led Zeppelin. You're never going to see Jimmy Page on the street. You're never going to see Robert Plant on the street. Mm-hmm. It's the mythology of that. Nobody knew anything about those guys. So everybody wanted to know everything about those guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So were you a member of the Kiss Army? <laughs> I wasn't. I was I, I was a diehard fan. I just, you know, to go to my mom and dad and ask for money to join the freaking Kiss Army, <laughs> they didn't tell me to go piss up a rope. Yeah. <laughs> Clean out the garage. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about Kiss, I can remember that. My buddy down the street, Darren Helton, had the loudest stereo, the, and, and he would put his speaker up in the window and play Kiss albums. We'd all have baseball bats in the front yard and, and uh, you know, playing air, air guitar and singing Kiss songs. Yeah. That's the best. We used to do plenty of that. Craig Brewer had some drumsticks, so he would, he would, he would, he air, would drum. air drum. Yeah. And we had plenty of basement bands. You're in the band. Who are you? Well, who are we going to be this year or who this week? Oh, we're going to be Leonard Skinner this week. Okay. <laughs> So, I want to be Ronnie. Oh, <laughs> I want to be Ronnie. Frank, when did you finally get that first instrument? There's two answers to that. There was a guitar that ended up in the house, and I thought it was my brother's. <laughs> he tells me it wasn't. It was an acoustic guitar, and it just got kind of kicked around the house. And and eventually, in one of my fanatical acts, I obviously, I did a Paul Stanley on it in the basement. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was an acoustic guitar, so it made a lot of noise, and I didn't really think that through. I didn't think anybody in the family would hear me smashing an acoustic <laughs> guitar against the concrete floor in the uh. basement. There wasn't another guitar in the house until I figured out how to not break the guitars. <laughs> so That's fair. I was probably 11 or 12, okay. and that took three years of begging. What'd you get? I got a Harmony Acoustic. And I asked for a Les Paul. <laughs> hey, I had this. I want this sunburst. This exact one. Wood brown guitar in a cardboard box. Nope. Dude, hope you like this. Uh, they probably acoustic. went to Dixie Music Center and said Frank's crazy. <laughs> yeah, they said. Yeah, that. yeah. We need a beginner guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's it's the Les Paul, the beginner Les Paul. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was none of that. No. So how did you learn to play? I didn't. I just acted like I knew how to play for a few years and kind of never got to play with anybody, and I never could play. And then I had a friend I looked up to because he was the only guy in school who could really, really play the guitar. And when I say play the guitar, he could play the guitar like modern standards. Mm-hmm. now i mean he was great <laughs> there was nobody in i mean he was like 11th or 12th grade and he was just phenomenal what was his name his name was kevin moran we went to airquay high school and uh he's kind of a car nut too but he had like the big the big ted nugent amp like the big two fifth three fifteens or whatever oh my like god a showman dual showman <laughs> and it was like You'd go in his basement, and I'd go, oh, what's that country amplifier? And he'd plug in, and he'd, he had a Les Paul. And he's like, oh, my God. it's a f- It was, yeah. <laughs> it, it blew my mind. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to be as good as him, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just had a style even, I mean, this was 1984, 85. He just had his own style even back then in high school. So it was cool to see. It was an inspiration that somebody who lived three streets away and who hated his parents, just like (laughs) everybody did, could do this, and his parents didn't kick him out. (laughs) Was he playing with bands at that time? He probably was, but I didn't know him on that side of his life. I just knew him through school and kind of music talk. So I didn't, you know, we didn't run together, so I don't know much about him. So so did Kevin show you? things is that how is that how you got into playing i literally watched him play a couple of chords and i just said will you play that again you know he's not noodling he's just kind of jamming and and then all of a sudden i hear something that i maybe have heard in music on an album like a chord change or the sound of a chord or a certain chord and then all of a sudden i see him playing that chord and I know what goes into it now. I know it's the bottom four strings. And that what gives it that top sound is because it's the thin strings. And I go, oh. And then all of a sudden, everything just went, bloop, and everything kind of fell into place. And I went home that summer, and I learned how to play these three chords or four chords or probably closer to two or three. And I learned how to play these chords. And then I switched to bass. Right off the bat, huh? First off, I was never going to be a guitar god. And if I'm not going to be a guitar god, I don't even want to play. <laughs> I mean, if I'm not going to be the best, it's, it's kind of a it's a family disposition. 
it's competition. Mm. Growing up in a family with three other siblings, you learn to compete. <laughs> Mm. And you know which which ones you're going to win and which ones you're going to lose. And at some point, you become practical. I've always, if anything, I learned from my mother. It's that I try to be practical with how I think. Practicality told me I'm not going to be a guitar wizard, and I'm not going to stand out there and go <laughs> on the on the on the extended axle ramp uh, out in the middle of the crowd <laughs> and receive the adoration. It just wasn't going to happen. I didn't look like a rock star. I wasn't going to be that good. But the bass actually felt better in my hands. It was a physically bigger instrument, bigger neck, bigger strings. And I figured out I had a knack for the mel- the counter melody of the song, which in the 70s, really, in the 60s and the 70s, the bass guitar propelled all that music Mm -hmm. there was the singer's melody but it was the bass player's melody that was in the background always singing back to the singer and propelling the song along so the song could move into new spots Mm -hmm. i figured that out early i was like oh this informs another part of playing you play with a singer and you play with a drummer and you got to get out of the way of the guitar Stuff like that. All that came together real quick. It was just within about two years, I went, I call it to myself, I refer to it as my my Robert Johnson crossroads phase. (laughs) I mean, to where I just like. So you've sold your soul, huh? I've done that, but it was (laughs) in a marriage license. (laughs) Uh oh. Um, But within about. Two years, I went from not being able to make a sensible noise on on an instrument to through playing the bass and, and learning to understand what I was doing because for some reason it made sense. I don't know why it made sense, but everything made sense to me. When I approached it through the bass guitar, it made perfect sense. And then I could go, but I still like to play guitar. And then I could take that and apply it to the guitar and go – now this makes absolute perfect sense. I'm still not going to be good, but I understand it. Mm. I want to understand something if I'm doing it uh, to the degree that it doesn't slow me down. I just want to know what's I want to know what's under the hood. I like to take things apart. I kind of like to look at the guts of something. And that's kind of what I did. In about 2 years time, I just almost stopped socializing except with my best friend and spend all of my time just listening and playing. I probably played four or five hours a day. I would come down for dinner and I would go back upstairs after I was done, come down to take a shower, you know, before bed and go back up and play and go to bed. So there was a lot of that for two or three years. It's amazing how many people on this podcast you know, that have become really good on an instrument that when they started, they played four to six hours every day. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder it, I'm no good. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like anything. It's like if you're, you know, if you're an apprentice, if you equate it with a, a skill or a, you know, a technical vocation, it's really no different. You have to do it. You just have to keep doing it in order to know what to do. You're only going to learn by doing it. And mm-hmm. that's really identified with that yeah 
for sure. And that, that's this uh, this podcast is coming out the 18th of September, so this is about 18 days after uh, Brad's officially retired. So you've been spending four to six hours a day on some stuff. You've been really good at engineering and producing. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> so are you, are you retired? I'm, I'm going to be retired, effective. Well, from this job, I'm going to have to keep doing something at, at my age. But I'm going to be retired, uh, effective September 1st. Oh, yeah. right on. So, how so old are you during this? Two. Thank you. Yeah, he's living a good life after. Yeah. that. I just came off a four-month retirement with a broken foot, and now he's going on a real retirement. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, how old are you during this two-year spell here? <sighs> 14, 15, 16, 15, 16. Okay. And, and when did you start playing with a group? Let's see. I was 16, the fall of my senior year. You're at this point real, real uh, efficient on the bass. So when you come into the band. I think so. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and you, you said something. Inter- <laughs> you said something interesting. You said you like to look, you know, get down to the guts of things. And but that is what the rhythm section is, is drums and bass. If you have a good drummer and a good bass player, you really, everything else is just accents in my opinion. And thinking about the time you grew up and the songs and the stuff you were listening to, man, you're right. It is so bass and uh drum driven i think yeah. more than anything is now even I'm, this may sound stupid but songs like uh, i will survive and, and things like that that oh, just yeah. that you don't you the almost need drum. nothing other than the bass the, and the, the bass and the vocals that's it i mean you listen to a lot of second half beatles songs and you listen to paul mccartney play the bass shoot and you go Oh, and he's singing a different <laughs> melody. And you go, the bass became to me, like when the Beatles, when I listen to the Beatles, I don't go anything. I listen to Ringo Starr because I like how he plays the drums. Mm. It sounds silly. People bag on Ringo. It's mm. not that he's the best. He had a style. He had mm. his own thing. And you hear him and you go, that's simple. That's Ringo. That's Ringo. But. I didn't care about George, and I still don't care about George Harrison and John Lennon in that way. Mm-hmm. When McCartney played the bass and you heard the counterpoint that he was playing on the bass to his vocal, and you go, he's having a conversation, and you're hearing the secondary melody on the bass mm-hmm. that's as memorable as the melody that he's singing sometimes. That was a huge, and like I said, Growing up in the 70s, that was all you heard. You heard all the big Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. I had great examples to look at from Motown mm-hmm. to Motown, you know, yeah. rock and roll to Paul McCartney and then to people like Geezer Butler, the bass player for Black Sabbath, mm-hmm. who had just a, a super individual way of doing things. That's pretty much the sound of my <laughs> yeah. of the things that made me go. Well, and it makes sense, too, because you love rock, but you have that rhythmic background with what you grew up listening to. It makes a ton of sense why bass just clicked for you yeah. once you, uh, you know, kind of gave the guitar up on it for, yeah. for the number one instrument anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what was the first band name? Oh, wow. Real band name was Action. A-X-T-I-O-N. And the X was two cross-neck flying V guitars. <laughs> oh, killer. <laughs> Make an X. Uh, <laughs> it had to be with the X. I knew it. 
Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's we, a Higdon. Yeah, we had Roger Higdon on here, and all his first bands all had X's in the, in the name. <laughs> it was the time and the place. <laughs> I think Roger's another one of the guests we've had that, yeah. that mentioned you, Frank. Have you played with Roger before? I haven't, but I know him. We were we were trying to figure out where who who had mentioned your name on here, and we thought maybe it was Roger Phil Higdon Bright. and Phil Bright. Phil's a good guy. Phil's yeah. a good dude. But I know Ryan Murphy and Tony Clark did. And yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah. Uh, now, you've played with those guys, correct? I've never played with Tony, but I've played with Ryan a lot. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So, Ryan was talking about sitting in as a drummer and yeah. how he always looks for the person in the band that can keep him where he needs to be. Yeah. To look for his liaison. He said, if Frank Green's yeah. in the band, you follow look at Frank, Frank. Green. <laughs> you follow Frank. It's a blessing and a curse. Sometimes I just want to sit back and play. I mean, sometimes you got to, you know, it, it's like training wheels. A drummer's tough. You got to, if the drummer goes off on a different part and he doesn't know the songs, the whole thing turns into a train wreck. Yes. So it, it's in everybody's best interest if you got somebody sitting in to just kind of give them the old head nod, like, here we're going now and <laughs> yeah. now. And oh, we're going to stop, stop, you know, <laughs> without having to do that. There's all these weird head moves and, you know, anticipation looks like you're going to sneeze, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and people actually watch you do it. So it, it's kind of funny. It's like charades. <laughs> Brian is a, a champ and a pro and he's absolutely to be the guy who I'd called us sit in or take somebody's seat for the night oh yeah whenever i'm guessing you've probably played in quite a few bands or not oh i guarantee you've played in all the bands <laughs> <laughs> can you play tonight frank just, just one night frank can you come i've done it <laughs> you know and the thing about it, I, I never learned any of those songs that a lot of these people played I learned them through osmosis. I learned them through hearing them a thousand times. Mm. And it's just like, okay, what key does it start in? Give me the give me the, the first chord of the, how does it start? Bong, bong. Got okay. It. As soon as I know where it is, on where it starts, I know where all the rest of the notes are because mm. I'm my head is kind of, I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. So you begin to, you know when you hear a C or a G and then, when you're listening to music or subconsciously listen to music, I just, I don't sit down and if I have to learn something, I haven't done this in a long time. I don't play cover bands anymore. I just kind of just said, okay, I'm done. But I would put on a CD or I would put on a playlist and I would exist in the room with the music. I didn't pick up a guitar. I just heard the songs, realize what key they're in. If I had a question, I'd call somebody in the band but you learn to know what a G sounds like. You learn to know what an A or a D sounds like. So when, if you know where that note is, the notes you hear after that are relative to that. And you go, oh, I know what he's doing. He's going do, 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 and he's moving here. Or he's going down and he's just kind of this thing. And it's just some of those things. It's, th- it's that thing you can't teach. It's only by doing. I mm-hmm. don't know how to read music. I don't know how to write uh, or read the Nashville system, which is a number system. It's just something I do. When I sit in with somebody, I don't learn the material unless it's something that's heavy metal or something like that that I really listen to. 
and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of iffy on that, you know, so, so maybe they won't play it that night. But <laughs> I, yeah, I try to make it as organic as possible. I, there's nothing like cramming for doing something once. <laughs> doing $150 worth of work for a $100 gig. Yeah. No. <laughs> but the good news, I mean, I, I think especially when you were doing the cover stuff is uh, based on genre, if you're playing with a, a decent little rock band or a, a pop band, all their stuff is generally the same covers. You've got your standard 20 and then they might have 10 or 12 that are different than the rest of the band, but... That kind of helps, I'm sure. It, it does. Or it hurts. It breaks your heart. Yeah, it hurts everybody's heart because they end up going to see bands who are exactly the same, yes. playing the same set lists. And some of them had played 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets too comfortable just thinking that they can go out and make a paycheck and play the same thing everybody else think, everybody else plays and play it, that it's worth money. Mm-hmm. music is something you have to go out and prove you earn your reputation you earn your following you earn your you earn your accolades your slings and your arrows you earn it all and if you go out and you're just going by the numbers trying to pull a little bit of cash it, it looks like it mm-hmm. so you got to do something different you have to even when you're doing covers you got to do originals you have to be unique you have to give people a reason to come see you Therein is the intangible. <laughs> yeah, but could you know, once you break that down yeah. and explain that how that happens, well, <laughs> people actually good personalities. Yeah, you look for certain personalities or the way people interact together. You know, there there has to be commonality. If you're going to spend long amounts of time and long nights with people, you want people who aren't hotheads. You want people who aren't. Uh, subject to emotionally flying off the handle all the time. You want people who are cool. You want people who are level-headed and smart is preferable, but (laughs) common sense goes a long way. Mm. You you just end up finding out what you don't want to be around the longer you want. The longer you're doing it, the more caveats you start to have. Okay, cool. Is he doing it? All right, I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to play in that band. I'm just not going to be in a in a band with that guy, and for this reason, this reason. And I don't have to give anybody a reason. I can just say, no thanks. I mean, with anything, your work is is what people. I say work. I mean, it, mm-hmm. being in a cover band is work. Uh, don't tell, let anyone tell you it's some uh, bullshit uh, skill because it's not. Mm-hmm. People who paint murals and wonderful things do lots of other things that pay their bills. Mm-hmm. You know, they paint a lot of houses. They paint <laughs> a lot of murals. They paint a lot of uh, country scenes and sell them at flea markets. There are things that you have to do to pay the bills in your home. And there are the things that are your passion or everything isn't, isn't the, the Sistine Chapel. You know, there are houses to be painted. There are pretty portraits to be to be sketched. So people make money in a lot of different ways, especially as an artist. You learn to be lean in how you operate. You learn to try to crystallize what you try to do with the people that you have available and the resources you have available. You go, okay, I can do this and do this. This guy's involved. 
I'll take him, I'll take him and him, all these people. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But back to what I was saying, you, you just have to know the chemistry of people. You have to know the people you're dealing with and you have to trust them and you have to trust that everybody's going to do their job. And it's not just walking on stage. It's back then it was owning our own PA, owning our own van, owning our own trailer, mm-hmm. sharing insurance, setting up and tearing down our own gear at the beginning of gigs. And that involved getting there at five o'clock or six o'clock, seven o'clock and working for two and a half hours before you're ready to go. And then this, you know, an hour and 15 on the way out that night, Mm -hmm. you know, who's going to stick around for loadout. (laughs) Yeah. You know who you're going to hire, you know, not going to (laughs) hire. Um, at some point it stops being about music and it stops to be, it starts being about ethic and people you can count on. And uh, just like anything else, like you want a mechanic, if I know a great drummer, all right, cool. I know that guy got a great mechanic. This is the guy you need. He he'll fix your stuff and he'll, everything will be on the up and up. It's just like that. There are the people that you can go to and and you know that you're going to get what you need. You can put a price on that. Yeah. Somebody can monetize that and they do. Yeah. For Ryan sure. Murphy does it. Yeah. So Frank, you've settled in with a group currently, right? Yes. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, uh, what is going on with you now? I played original bands off and on for the past 30 years, starting in probably 1988 up through, 93 uh, I was in an original band and then I didn't play music for a while and then I joined a band called Whatever Will which was a bar band that's who talked about another person who talked about she was uh, Chris Donahue oh yeah 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 Whatever Will must have had a hell of a lot of lineup changes they had a lot of lineup changes but they had a lot of that was a big band yeah we we were here's the thing there was two there's two distinct Whatever Wills there is what I call, and this isn't derogatory, there's the college rock whatever will, which was everybody was doing at that time. This early, you know, probably early 90s. Okay. And a lot of these guys were in college. And there was a guy named Will in the band. He was the bass player, Will Caton. Whatever but, will. Whatever will. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's a weird dynamic. And one by one, and they had a, a, a woman named Laura who played keyboards and sang. Rick Wilson sang. Mark Esterly played drums. You should talk to Mark Esterly. Mark Esterly is a, a surgeon and a brilliant one. And he played drums for whatever will. And he's okay. a musician. And he's getting ready to put down a, out his second album, I think. Oh, cool. One by one, the original band members started getting married or getting involved in a career and coming out and starting a, a a career and whatever. So they all started falling off. So people started getting kind of infused. People kind of moved through the band. My friend, Sean Kennedy joined the band. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Scott, my friend, Scott Clark, Scott Clark wasn't my friend then, but he's now uh, joined the band and it continued kind of as primarily as primarily as a, a college rock cover band. And then, Myself and Billy Masterson joined the band in 1996, and the whole mood of the band changed. <laughs> when I say the whole mood of the band, I mean, it became a different band because mm-hmm. it was, I said, the only way I'm going to join this band is if I can pick most of the songs on our songs list. And they were like, <laughs> uh. I said, trust me on this. 
and it's not because of me. There are a lot of different reasons that happened, but we, we became a super popular traveling cover band. And, you know, we played literally 50 weeks a year, probably 150, 175 gigs a year. It's insane. Um, that ended. And as soon as that, and that ended in my five years, when that ended, I had the opportunity to join a band that was trying to get a record deal called Outspoken. I joined the band in the fall of 2001. And uh, I'm sorry, the uh, spring of 2001. And uh, we went to New York and we showcased for all the record labels and blah, blah, blah. And we finally walked away with an Atlantic record deal. And that took me up through 2004-ish. So that was short, three three years. And then uh, 2005 or six, I joined a band called Ugly, or I put together a band called Ugly with a couple of friends of mine. And we made a record and put it out. Thought we were great, just <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> but then, it, you know, but all this time I'm working. I'm just doing the normal grind and playing in cover bands when I can. After Whatever Will, because Whatever Will came back and I uh, probably played for three or four years again, a few years ago. And after that ended, I just, I knew I had to, um, my, my mom had just passed and I had a couple of friends who had passed. I was in a weird spot and I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live forever. So if I'm ever going to do a, a record with a band that I put together with my music or my songs, I've got to do it now. Mm. And it was something that I talked to my mother about, you know, she said, it's time you know, like to do something for you. Yeah. And I kind of took that to heart. Like, you know, yeah, let me just do this. I don't, I don't, I don't have any preconceived notions or any aspirations, but I have to do this. So that, 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 that set me on a course about four years ago to start writing, demoing and um, recording this music. That's now the band's called Silkwood Showers. But the album is going to be called The Great Depression. And when it's all done, it'll have nine songs. Got six of them done right now. Awesome. It's just a trial and error process. I feel like I'm one song short. No matter how many songs I write, I feel like I'm <laughs> one song short. And it's whatever the one that's that I'm loving that day, the next day ends up not being the one. So <laughs> I'm in a continuous feedback loop of... of um, Listening to your own music. I understand no. that. You hate it all. It's like, this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. Next song. making the next step. Oh. Just keep playing. And like, oh, I need to keep changing this. Yep. And, and you know, at the beginning of this process, I thought I had a song that I kept trying to perfect. And then one day I went, what the hell are you trying to perfect a demo for? <laughs> just, just give it to somebody and go, play the drums, play the guitar, <laughs> or play the bass. Here. This is a de demonstrate to demonstrate to your friends <laughs> what you want them to play. And that's basically what I did. And then I just went, oh, screw this. And I just made master copies of everything and just sent out like five songs. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. And then, you know, a few more songs. Hey, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. Demoitis. Paul Stanley called it demoitis. <laughs> you're only going to do, you're, you've got the itis. You got the demoitis. So, Stop paying attention to the demo. Give people the music. And I did that. 
and it started ha- happening slowly. So once uh, once you sent that music out to the the people that you entrusted with it, did the songs evolve? Absolutely. I, I, I tried for a year and a half to get my best friend Scott McKenzie to play to help me to play the drums and to help me because he has. Uh, He's an, he has good arranging skills. He he has perspective, whereas I don't have perspective. He can say, you're not listening to me, or you're not hearing what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And then he can kind of demonstrate what I'm doing or what he what he's hearing that he thinks would be a better or, or a nice addition or just a suggestion. So he's really good in the arrangement category. And that's where I am not. I'll do a song and then I'll record another song and then I'll go back and listen to them and I'll do like five songs and they'll all be arranged exactly the same. <laughs> Intro, verse, chorus, pause, <laughs> second verse, double chorus, bridge, no solo, last chorus out. And it's, um, so he takes care of that. He just goes, he just kind of mixes it up and, and we start playing the way, whatever, wherever it takes us. I work too, too much on in the weeds when I should be working on the 10,000 foot view. Yeah. So <laughs> tell us about the name Silkwood Showers. Cause I think I know what a Silkwood Shower is, but how did that become a band name? Because I think everybody knows what a, of a certain age, probably when they think of a Silkwood shower, they kind of, you kind of remember that movie or that the process of being decontaminated. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Like brushed with a hardcore Hard, brush, a painful yeah. shower. It's kind of a painful process. <laughs> um, but it's also very descriptive. Like I have a friend, Heather, and she, uh, you know, she would say, you know, she'd been out running or something like that, or it was humid. And she's oh, I've been running. It's gross. I just had to come home and I like I took a silkwood shower. I'm so scummy. It's just like absolutely can decontaminate yourself. So it was kind of also double meaning. Part of this process was getting rid of a lot of stuff that I was kind of carrying around on a personal level and an emotional level too. When I heard the name in passing, talking to her, talking about she just wanted to be clean. She just wanted to get this stuff off her skin. She just wanted to be, you know, not muggy. I thought, wow, that's, wow, this could work in any part of anybody's life. Hmm. So I kind of kind of run with it that way or ran with it that way. So I got on a band camp today and I listened to uh, The Quick and Angel, uh-huh. Devil, and Me and Shit yep. Show. So you got three of them out there now, right? Yes, correct. What'd you think? Yeah, I enjoyed those, and I'd like to. I was going to see if we could maybe play, you know, at least a, a snippet, and then, and then maybe close close out with one. Do you mm-hmm. have a? Everybody gets stumped when you ask about someone's own songs with this. But what, what would you say yours is your favorite of those three? He already told uh, you that he goes through them and hates them, <laughs> and loves them the next day. I mean, what's your favorite right. today? <laughs> I, you know. When I started sending out all these things to people, I cut my emotional connection to all the music. Okay. At that point, I went, okay. Let's listen to a little bit of The Quick right now. The Quick is a good song. It's probably the best overall song of those first three. Yeah. The Quick, I kind of gave up on. And uh, 
I just got sick of hearing it because that's the one I had demoitis on. <laughs> I just got tired of hearing it. So it was like, you're dead to me, song. I don't ever <laughs> want to hear you again. <laughs> and then it came out so good. We recorded it. I was like, okay. Sounds amazing. Well, thanks. These these songs just took on a life of their own. Once I started recording them, once we started recording them, I'm not in the, alone in this process. But they kind of took on a life of their own, and any preconceived anything that I had planned kind of went out the window. Yeah, uh, it's like okay, all of a sudden it sounds different mm-hmm. coming through studio monitors. Okay. Well, that gives me an idea for this. So it's this kind of song now. It takes me with it wherever it goes. So it's like, okay, I know I'm not going to be able to get away from it. So this is the way it is. This is the way it was recorded today. So how can we make this even better today with what we just recorded? Okay. So you start piling on stuff or taking away stuff. Mm -hmm. It either becomes better or worse. And you just, it's a trial and error. Yeah. You, know, you try to work fast because you're paying for things. But also, I don't like the, I don't like the comfort of, of the studio to be, oh, it's not supposed to be cozy. It's supposed to be somewhere that you're comfortable, but this is where you're going to do your work. You gotta so get you got to, yeah, get your head in the right mindset, put the on air, you know, light on as far as people in your life and mm-hmm. walk away from your phone for the day and stop doing anything or thinking about anything except what you're doing yeah and you got to have people that are not intimidated by that setting i mean they're they're you've dealt i'm sure you've dealt a million uh with plenty of people that that have you know you bring them in they play amazing and you've had uh chemistry and then they get in the setting and they just are a different player you're like what yeah just relax man do what you do yeah and 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 i think people equate the studio with everybody in the world is going to hear me play Mm. or listen to me suck (laughs) and that's what gets in your head yeah if you if you just at some point you go okay what am i what am i nervous about what what am i uptight about i wouldn't be here if if i couldn't do this i wouldn't have 
been encouraged by all my friends or this person or that person to do this if it was terrible. And if I was encouraged and I am terrible, I have the worst friends <laughs> in the world <laughs> to give me this terrible advice. They just get me up there so they can laugh at me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't need this. Um, you just have to have confidence. You just need to give yourself the personal space to be creative, to let your guard down, to be open to whatever it sounds corny and hokey, but you kind of have to be open to the possibility of having no control over what happens. Whatever happens, happens. And this isn't like some you know, chaotic punk rock music, but you have to be open to the unexpected mm -hmm. and don't be so rigid and don't think about overthink too much because you're going to, it kills people. I've seen better men reduced to their proverbial knees in a studio because of fright, because of lack of confidence, lack of musical self-esteem and arrogance. So no one is immune. Have all the people that have recorded with you been the same people in this band? Uh, yeah, the core is is uh, Scott McKenzie on drums, my best friend. Oh, you Another got him! Great... You nailed him down. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, he came around. Good. Eventually, I think he he I think he realized I was starting to write things that were okay. <laughs> I think he was trying to make sure I didn't suck. It's <laughs> a good. Friend. There's nothing worse than having to tell your best friend that yeah, you know, I love you, but. <laughs> Shit sucks. <laughs> um, and another good friend of mine, Sean Kennedy, plays the bass. He okay. plays bass in Turn Three. Okay, yeah. And he was a guitar player in Whatever Will and a guitar player in Outspoken, uh, where we had an Atlantic deal. I wanted people who were low impact on my brain. I wanted people who are trustworthy. And Sean's not a bass player, but I called him and I, I said, I want you to play bass on this because it means a lot to me. And it would mean a lot to me if you played on it because I like you and you can play the bass. You just don't know it. Here's a bass, you know, <laughs> uh, just relax. He goes, but so wait a minute. You, you don't play bass on this. I've stopped playing the bass. I haven't picked up a bass. I played bass on one song in the studio, and that was the first time I'd picked up a bass in a year. What? What's going on here? So I, I play guitar and I sing. Oh, okay. All right. Just huh. so, made yeah, the transition, just, huh? Are you still teaching bass? Yes, I played bass for a lot of a lot of years, <laughs> and I'm retired. Uh, I'm okay, doing something else with my retirement. There you go. I put in the time. It's time to go in another direction. It's well, always, cool. it's always, it's never going to go away. I kind of have a, a distinct style when I play with, a, when I play by myself, you go, man, what a freaking schlep. This guy can't play for shit, but you put me with a drummer and all of a sudden you go, Oh, that's a great rhythm section. I can play with people. I can play with a drummer, you know, mm -hmm. and not just ping, ding, ding, ding ways. I can, it's the intangible. My technique isn't devastating. My, I'm not flashy. I'm not showy. But I have a style. That's cool. No one knows it except the dog. <laughs> um, but when Sean 
was like, I don't know how you want me to do this. I was like, I am not Frank, the bass player. <laughs> I'm the guitar player and the singer. I'm never going to go. I wouldn't play it like that because I don't, the last thing I wanted was to record this and hear me playing the bass because that's what I always done. I don't want to listen to the bass anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to the demos and I'm like, Oh, that bass is terrible. I'm like, who gives a shit about the bass guitar? And that's when I let go of it. Yeah. And uh, I just said, you do whatever you want. If I have any specific things I want you to do, I will distinctly tell you, but I'm not the bass player. I'm not Frank, the bass player you played with. I'm just the guy in the band with you. So I just try to put him at, at ease to where he wouldn't think that I'm always over there, you know, giving him the stink face, you know, <laughs> what's he doing? He's never done this before. He played guitar for a long time, but he's still finding where the spots are. So that's, I'm okay. When I let go of, of control, it's all part. I've been in therapy for a few years <laughs> and it's all part of letting go of having control of everything in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's certain freedom that I found in my life by letting go control. I don't want it. I just want to be there. Yeah. And it works. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So speaking of, well, speaking of letting go, we got three more songs that you're going to finish and then you have a, a nine track album. Are you going to do any type of release for that? Yes. It's obviously it's going to be out uh, on all the digital platforms. It, like just like where the first three songs are now they're on every streaming platform. Okay. Uh, pretty much any for purchase or subscription platform currently. So we're just going to expand that. I currently have the album set to like two or $3 on Bandcamp. I'm going to go back and put it to $3. And uh, when you buy it at $3, it's the promise that you will get the other six when they come out at no extra charge. Okay. So I'm, I'm having people try to buy the three songs because if they just wait until they're done, they'll have the whole album for three bucks. I know it's chintzy and or whatever, but I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not trying to make money here. It'd be yeah. great, but it's it's not. <laughs> I'm not looking at what my PayPal balance is and going, oh, this is this is disgusting. Um, <laughs> well, and I just uh, speaking of the three that are out right now, are just been added to the Top Hill Recording Podcast guest playlist on Spotify, which there we you have. Go. So you're on the playlist, you're, right? You're officially you. on the playlist, man. Silkwood Showers is on it. All three. Awesome. <laughs> I hate Spotify. Well, you've made yeah, one Spotify playlist at least. Oh, um, I don't, yeah. Just use it. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's an ethical thing. Oh, I agree, man. <laughs> um, I think you should make, if these things get about 1.7 million hits, you should get your 13 $8. cents in the mail yeah. in the next year it's or so. <laughs> you remember, do you remember a couple of years ago when there was a band or an artist that had all of their, they were kind of an underground artist or a SoundCloud artist, and they had everybody who was a follower put on their stream and, and repeat this certain song overnight. And within, I don't know, 18 hours, it was like 36 million streams. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Well, they kind of. My kids are in, you know, like I said, they're teenagers, so they know the 
the pop stuff going on right now and my uh, middle kids into uh, pop music pretty hardcore so he likes that bts group and they released some song tuesday i think it had a hundred million views in a night wow a hundred million views in well, a night. and even people that aren't big names there's a lot of money being spent to hire people that's whole purpose is to manipulate these platforms into getting getting for, followers for, and listening first 24 and, numbers yeah mm-hmm. if you hit a certain number and the first two weeks it gets you on this hot upcoming list and yeah, yeah it's big business and absolutely is big business all of these things were were put into place and started by entities like clear channel mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and live nation and iheart i mean they're all the same company yeah and this is what they were doing to the uh rock charts the active rock charts in the uh in the, in, in the mid 20 aughts we had people in radio programming taking parts pieces of bands getting bands and divorces uh, promo guys would split a band like say seether a divorce would happen and the husband would get every other month's revenue from the band even though he's a programmer he somehow got a piece of the band's gross whether it be one percent or five percent oh yeah <laughs> yes. and then the that guy's the programmer so he puts them on every all the hot playlists that clear channel is going to play and of course they can't lose because they they're the guy who uh programs these 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 playlists has a financial stake in the band so he wants to succeed mm-hmm. all of this is illegal it's a monopoly but it continues to this day especially with things like iheart if i could stand out in front of iheart live nation and clear channel and shoot a flaming arrow into it <laughs> i would do it you know the craziest part is at least back then artists made a little bit of money anymore you can't put anything out they take 99 percent, if not 99.9 now at least they left you a piece of the meat back in the day my my drummer real quick my drummer scott my best friend um his band after i we got my band outspoken got a deal with atlantic his band was was trying to get a deal and they were dealing with all these kind of people, lawyers and record company people. And uh, he said, uh, there's no money to be had anymore. And I said, who's told you that? He goes, well, word on the street that the outspoken got the last of the big record deals. <laughs> and I'm like, big record deals? <laughs> like, what does that mean? He goes, like, $250,000 to record a record. Oh, okay. Now I see what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> those yeah. days are done now yeah we owed fifth we we owed a half a million dollars the moment we signed our deal isn't that crazy that's <laughs> crazy uh, wow anyway well, fortunately this this interview is uh free of charge so wait <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate you all having me on today it means a lot thank you yep, and, and thank uh you. where if people are gonna find you on any type of socials or anything like that or to hunt down this a way to buy this album what's the best way for them to do that um bandcamp.silkwoodshowers.com or um you can go to uh apple music or spotify and add us to your playlist you can buy the music from uh, the four for purchase uh, digital domains but bandcamp all the money pretty much 
for the most part, goes to the artist and it goes right into our bank accounts. It doesn't get doesn't get rolled through in fees. So cool. Bandcamp dot Silkwood Showers, Twitter Silkwood Showers, Silkwood Showers on Facebook, uh, Spotify. We have pages on all the major uh, streaming platforms, so you can find us on social media. Right. Silkwood Showers, we'll do it, man. Yep. Thanks again, Frank. Hey, and thank listeners, you, Frank. we'll Got see it. you next week. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah.